0: Please turn to Ezekiel in chapter 18. Ezekiel in chapter 18, please. As you do that, I'm going to, I want to announce something to you, and that is that next Sunday I'm going to do something different. By that I mean, for the last 14 and a half years, I've been walking to a pulpit, one before this one and now this one, and saying turn to whatever, and then I pray. Next Sunday, I'm going to come up and just pray and then tell you to turn to your passage. I just thought I'd tell you that. Because if I don't, you'll com- be confused next week. Now, the reason I'm going to do that is I noticed that sometimes when I start to pray, some of you are still looking for the passage. As if it's some sort of surprise. I've only been in Ezekiel forever now. But anyway, and I noticed, and I know it took me 14 and a half years to notice that. So I'm anxiously awaiting the next fifteen years to see just what I'll notice next. (laughs) But um but I thought there would no reason why I couldn't just pray and then look it up. So that's next week, remind me. Uh like a rented pony I may forget. But um so now let's 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 pray. Father in heaven, as we come to this passage, I pray you would help us. I Confess for all of us that uh, we're easily distracted and it's easy for us to even deny the fact that we need your truth because we'd rather think we know it all and that we've already, we're already fine. And so we really don't need this. But yet, Father, I confess for myself, for all of us that we do, that we need your word. And so I pray that it would nurture us and nourish us and encourage us and instruct us and convict us, strengthen us most especially, would reveal you to us, that we may be transformed by beholding you. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this Proverbs concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb, proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul of the soul whose sins shall die. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or, make, or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. If he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, though he himself did none of these things. Who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, lends an interest and takes profit. Shall he then, shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. Now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules and walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did uh, what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say, Why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right, and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, And the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness, and does injustice, and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live. None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered, for the treachery of which he is guilty, and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. Yet, you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed, he shall surely live. He shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? this week, as I began to prepare for this morning, the very first thing I wrote on my tablet was simply to say thank you to you for bearing with me through Ezekiel. Uh, I felt a great sense of, of gratefulness. I'm not a big holiday guy, I guess it is Thanksgiving. Maybe that's the prompting, but, but a great sense of Thanksgiving because I didn't take up Ezekiel for any academic reasons just to sort of learn it and understand it but for the purpose frankly of being transformed by it and coming really to know god as paul writes to the church in corinth in second corinthians in chapter 3 he says that we're transformed by beholding god and it seemed to me very important that i that we come to know god as ezekiel knew him and thus, not to skirt such a difficult, even, um, prophetic word. If our lives are really going to be transformed, because we believe that as we come to know the Scripture, we come to know God, and as we come to know God, therefore, then we're transformed by Him, by understanding His sovereignty, by understanding His holiness, by understanding His love, by understanding His mercy, by understanding His righteousness, by understanding His grace, and all that is true about God, that we grow, that we're really Transformed. I come from a theological tradition, I probably shouldn't tell you this because it'll freak some of you out, uh, from a theological position, I don't know why I'm telling you this, it's sort of self-disclosure day, uh, theological <laughs> position, a uh, tradition really, that all dead guys call experimental Calvinism. And it isn't that we're experimenting with Calvinism, and it isn't that we're experimenting with God. But the notion, really, I suppose if we're going to put it in 21st century language, it would be experiential theology. That is, that we're coming, we desire to experience that which is true about God. It isn't that we're just trying to learn about His holiness, but we want to experience the very reality of the holiness of God in the context of our own lives. It isn't that we're just going to read about forgiveness, but we want to experience the very forgiveness that God gives through Christ in our own lives. It isn't that we just want to read about the grace of God, we want to experience, we want to know it. It isn't that we just want to uh, read about and understand and be able to explain these various facets of the character of God and theology and all of that, we do in our own lives desire to know them and to experience them, that they've impacted our very lives. So we live as forgiven, accepted, reconciled, growing, strengthening, empowering Christians, followers of Christ. And so that's really why I'm here. So thanks for listening and bearing with me through this. And I hope... Struggling and experiencing, because I say that, I suppose it came to my mind after I read this chapter, because this is a hard chapter. Whether you caught it or not, there's a number of very naughty, K-N-O-T-T-Y, theological problems here. For instance, I'll just lay them out for you just in case. So I always like to identify the elephant that's in the room. I'm not going to speak to any of these, by the way, uh, today, and I'll tell you why, but I just want you to share my pain. Verse 5 says, If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he doesn't eat upon the mountains and so forth and so on. And so the question, when you read that, you go, is he saying that we're saved, we're given life because of our own righteousness? Well, that's a problem. Because... We believe that we're not saved on the basis of our own righteousness, that we can't be righteous in that perfection sense, and so we rely upon the righteousness of Christ. So so that's, that's a problem. And then in verse 21, but if a wicked person turns away from his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, does that mean that repentance really means that when I turn from my sin, I must keep all the statutes perfectly? That's a difficulty. We believe that repentance is turning away from sin. Yes, faith in Christ, the very one who kept them, and therefore we're forgiven our sins. And so, how does that play out? And then, of course, there's verse 26: When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does justice and does injustice, he shall die for it. And we ask the question: Can a righteous person really turn away from righteousness? We thought, I thought, if was someone who was declared righteous by God, then he wouldn't turn away from that, that he would continue to persevere to the end. And if he did sin, he'd be ultimately forgiven and saved. And so that's a problem. And then there is, uh, in fact, um, verse 32, which is a repeat of verse 23. So let me read for 23, where God says, Have I any pleasure... In the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. Verse 32 says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, uh, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. Now the difficulty there, in terms of as God expresses his heart for us to repent, is that at that moment in time, he knew they weren't going to repent. He had already told Ezekiel they're not going to listen. He's going to bring judgment, it does come. And so he knew they weren't going to repent. So is this really sincere on God's part to be able to say this? to be able to say, I really do want you to repent when he knows they're not going to repent. In addition to that, we know that repentance, really, true repentance, is a gift from God. It requires a change of heart in order for us to turn from our sins and to trust him. And so, if it really doesn't please him that people don't repent, then why doesn't he work repentance in everybody and then he can be pleased? And also, Psalm 135, 6, says that God does only that which pleases himself. And here he says he's not pleased and yet he's, going to judge them so is this really sincere on the part of god to speak like this to us and then in verse 31 he says this cast away from you all the transgressions that you've committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit why will you die o house of israel now i'm reading out of the english standard version I should have read out of the NIV because it says, and get yourself a new heart, which theologically is much easier to deal with than make yourself a new heart. I appreciate my NIV translator brothers, but I do know the Hebrew word as they did. They were just trying to make it more consistent because in Ezekiel 36, God says, I will give you a new heart. I will make you a new heart. Now he's telling them to make a new heart. How can we do that when that's a work of God? So the problems here Quite legion and difficult. Now, I actually have two sermons. I could have a sermon where are going to answer all of those. I'll just tell you that no, we aren't saved by our own righteousness, but by God's. No, you can't lose your salvation once righteous. And we can't make our own hearts. And God is sincere. There you go. <laughs> because I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. Because there's a point here. Now, there was one theologian, one the streets named after, said, Mister Calvin, that that God sometimes speaks to us and sees life and speaks to us as if He's looking through a narrow lens, and other times through a broad lens. That is, when there are times when He's looking through a narrow lens, and He's He's telling us through that narrow lens very directly what it is and what is truth. And other times through a broader lens where he can give us more of his secret will, if you will. And then there is some of his secret will that we simply won't know. And it isn't that he's withholding it from us. It's that there is some mystery. And the reason there's some mystery is because we're not God. And it isn't that we give him the benefit of the doubt. We give him the benefit of the trust. Because he's God. And so he can work all those things out. And so today I want us just to leave them with him. Trust him so that we see the real point. I mean, it's true in our own lives. We look through narrow lenses and broad lenses as well. When tragedy strikes at the moment, we say, that's awful. And it is. But yet we also have a broader lens of knowing that God will be at work in this and that a day may come and when we may say, there's great good in this. This is the narrow lens. God is looking directly at them and he's saying, this is what you must do. In a sense, we don't have time for the niceties. The bombs are going to fall soon. I can't give you all the detail and so here's what I'm telling you. If you want to escape judgment, this is how it is. Now you see, the complaint that they're having here is that God isn't being fair with them. Now you remember, and you ought to be able to sort of do this in your sleep, I hope if somebody says Ezekiel, you'll give them some brief history here, that you'll know that Ezekiel is writing at a time that the northern kingdom has already fallen, and the southern kingdom is about to fall, at least at this point in time, and that God is bringing judgment against Jerusalem. There's already been a couple of exiles, the Babylonians have come in and moved people out, and now God is saying you're going to be judged. And we've talked about the logic of that judgment, they were to be a vine, and yet they didn't bear fruit, so they were cut off. We've talked about the passion of that judgment, they were to be the very bride of God Himself. He was to be their husband, and yet they prostituted themselves and went out after other lovers. And so we see the passion of that judgment. We also see hope in the midst of that. Last Sunday, as we looked at Ezekiel chapter 17, and we saw that there was a planting is going to happen, that God's going to come as a big eagle and take a piece of, of, of the cedar and a, a, a twig, a sprout, and it's going to grow, and it will be our Lord Jesus Christ who is the very groom, who is the very vine. And so we see the hope in all of that. But now he's coming and saying, I'm not being unfair. They think he's being unfair. Notice in verse 2. Uh, what do you mean, God says, by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are on edge. They're saying, listen, it's not fair. You're judging us because of the sins of our fathers. They're the ones who've eaten the sour grapes. We're the ones now with this bad taste in our mouth. They're the ones who sinned. Now you're bringing judgment against us. That isn't really fair to do. Why are you doing that? They come out very explicitly later and just simply say, um, for instance, in verse 29, um, yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. Verse 25, yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. You're saying, God, this this isn't fair to do. Now they came by this view honestly, if you will, that, that they were receiving an impact from the sins of their fathers in a sense from God himself. You remember the commandment in Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 5 that says they shouldn't make any graven images and that in a sense he, God says that I will visit the iniquities of the fathers upon succeeding generations. Of those who hate me, but of those who love me, I will bless in succeeding generations. And certainly we know that to be true. We know that generations are in fact connected. We see the impact of one generation upon another generation all the time. We see it socially, we see it politically, we see it morally, we see in the context of our, our families. We certainly see it uh, politically. As decisions are made, and we know that one generation often pays for the expenses of the previous generation by paying off their debt, or at least trying. We know that one generation is affected politically by the preceding generations because of the way that our nation, the way that Israel, the way that our nation might interface with other nations. We may be in the midst of war or very difficult relationships with other nations because of what has taken place in previous generations. We know we inherit that. That's part of it. We know we inherit uh, social issues. We inherit legal problems. The way that marriage is defined will now affect generations to come. The ways that um, abortion is defined will affect in our own culture, generations to come. We understand that. We understand how laws can affect one generation to another. The laws that we have concerning how the elderly are treated or how the poor are treated or how the disadvantaged are treated will have ramifications for generations to come. We know that. We understand that. We know in the context of our own families that such exists as well. We know that how we were raised impacted, impacts us. We know that if we were sexually abused, we know that if we were abused emotionally in various ways, we know that will have an impact in the context of our lives. And so it does feel like, it does seem like that one generation receives punishment from the sins of the previous generation. And there is truth to that in the sense that one generation impacts another. But God is now saying to them simply this, you are responsible for your own lives. But stop everything, come back to the central truth, you're responsible for your own lives. Verse 4, he says, Behold, all souls are mine, the soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. He says, I'm not bringing this judgment upon you because of the sins of your fathers. Oh yes, they sinned. And oh yes, that impacted you. And oh yes, you're you're imitating them. But this is because of what you have done. You're responsible for your own sin before me. And then he goes on to give this illustration. He uses three different generations. First generation... Uh, the grandfather is righteous, follows God. Basically, he follows the law of God. He's faithful to the law of God, as an Old Testament righteous person would be, and he follows the law of God. No, no doubt, by faith, trusting. He may not follow it perfectly. That is, he may sin, but yet there are sacrifices available to him in which he trusts will cover his sin. But his heart's desire, because of the way his heart is, his heart's desire is to follow after God. And so he does. He doesn't eat from the mountains, for instance, uh, which means to worship idols or to lift up his eyes to the idols of Israel. He doesn't defile his neighbor's wife. There's no adultery. He doesn't oppress anyone. Uh, he restores to the debtor his pledge. That was very important in ancient Israel. If 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 you loaned money to a fellow Israelite and he gave you earnest something in earnest, something as a pledge could give you his cloak, you needed to return it to him before it got too cold. You couldn't keep it if he was uh, someone who worked um, with his hands and tools and he gave you his tools as earnest you would have to give them back to him so that he could use them in his work and if you didn't you were unjust and unloving uh, commits no robbery gives bread to the hungry covers the naked with a garment that is you look at your fellow Israelites you look at those in a sense part of your own family the own covenant family and if they're in need and you can supply that need you must And if you don't, you're being unjust, you're being unloving. doesn't lend an interest or take profit, different kind of situation than how we use those um, concepts and how we understand them. But basically saying you won't charge interest to someone in need that you're giving a loan to so that they can purchase food, so that they can live. And so you're not abusing that relationship and profiting because of someone else's uh, great disadvantage. You don't withhold your hand from justice. You execute true, true justice between people. You walk in the very statutes of God. Ah, that's the kind of person. He says, now shouldn't a person like that live? And everyone would say yes. And then he says, suppose he has a son. And his son doesn't walk as his father walked, but in fact his son is wicked. And he breaks the commandments of God. And he's unrighteous. And he's wicked. Shouldn't he therefore die? And the answer is yes. So Well then, what about another son after that? Let's say he turns from his father's sins... And walks with God. Shouldn't he live? Oh. Yes, he should live. Why? Because each person in each generation is responsible for themselves. Now what does that mean? Well, it means just that. It means that each of us is responsible for our own sin and none of us can blame anyone. It's very interesting. We, we, like, we like to blame Blaming sort of comes easy. It came easy in the Garden of Eden. You remember Adam sinned and he runs with Eve and God comes after him. He said, Adam, where are you? And why did you sin? And Adam says, well, oh, 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 God, it was this woman. And we think he shouldn't blame his wife, but he didn't. Because he says, God, it's this woman you gave me. He was really blaming God, ultimately. He says, it's really not fair that you should come after me like this, God, that I sinned because it's really your fault. Because you're the one that gave me this woman and she's the one who... Isn't that just like us? God, it really isn't my fault. It's really yours. You're the one who created this situation in the first place. You're the one who made me like this. I was born in sin. God, I really don't have this... He said, no, 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 no. The truth of the matter is you're responsible for your own sin. Now, that doesn't mean that society and our families can't make it more difficult for us to walk with God. Our society certainly can make it more difficult to walk with God. Our society does not reinforce or reward godly behavior. It rewards selfish behavior. It, it rewards greed. It rewards materialism. It rewards gossip. It rewards, in, in a variety of ways, self-centeredness and self-dependence. It rewards all of that. Not only that, but certainly our society influences negatively in the, more morally in the context of Christ. The society allows us to shade the truth, expects us to shade the truth in varieties of ways. There's a certain amount of lying and deception that's just sort of common in the culture. Expected in the culture. We know it goes on. Immorality obviously is an easy target because it's so rampant. Especially this these days as more tolerance plus technology have combined together, it makes it increasingly easy for immorality to spread. There was an article this week in Christianity Today that I just got yesterday. I didn't read the whole article, I read the headline and and a little bit of it, but it was interesting that it was in CT because it was an article on the fiftieth Anniversary of the founding of Playboy magazine. And you don't always see such titles in Christianity today. So it caught my attention, but it was interesting analysis just the bit I read. And that is that one of the things that made this magazine able to become successful is because Hugh Hefner found a way to get into the hands of men quietly, secretly, behind closed doors. By mail. You didn't have to go out and purchase it and admit that you were going to do this, but it simply came to your home. And of course in these days, with the advent of computers and the internet and all of that, we find immorality easy and private. And what we also find is a tremendous problem in our culture, of immorality, especially in men, and even in the context of the church. That makes it more difficult, quite frankly, to follow Christ. But yet even in the midst of that, we stand unable to blame technology, unable to blame our society. But God says, no, 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 no. The soul who sins shall die. We're still responsible for our own actions, our own lives, our own hearts. We can't blame. The same is true, and even more so, I suspect, in the context of families. If you're the product of, of bad parenting, it may make it more difficult for you in many areas to follow Christ. It may be that encultured in, in you from your family is a sense of materialism and greed that makes you think really that your security is going to be found in stuff. Or maybe in you is, is, is just because of the way that you grew up. You grew up in the, in the kind of family culture that says that success is really what defines you and most important. And you find yourself driven towards material and social success and business success and you can't really shake that and that's what has your mind. But yet when you face God, you can't say, well, you know, I'm just like my dad. He said, no, 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 no. Each one is responsible for own lives and behavior. Same is true, obviously, of various kinds of abuse that may take place in the context of one's life, it may make it very difficult, very difficult, to follow Christ. But still, the truth that must be laid out, no matter what else we say about everything else, is that each is responsible before God for one's own heart, one's own life. And of course, the great mystery of this is that we're born sinners. We're born with a sinful nature. And that still doesn't let us off the hook. We're still responsible, mysteriously so. And the big question in Scripture, the question that the Scripture does address is, how can you hold me responsible, really, for this? Is God really just? And and you know, many of you, the answer to this, because we've discussed it enough, probably. But in Romans, in chapter 9, it's, the issue that the apostle deals with in a sense is God just? How can he condemn me when no one can resist his will? Here he's talking about this doctrine of election that God chooses and changes hearts of those who will follow him, and he will come with compassion on whomever he wishes. And of course, the answer to the question is God just is yes, he is just. Verse 19 of Romans 9 You will say to me then Why does he that is God still find fault for who can resist his will? Here's the answer But who are you, O oh man to answer back to God? But well, what is molded say to its molder Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump of a one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use What if God does I won't read that But there you go He's saying it's just true. I can't answer that question. That's part of the mystery of God into which we can't dwell to understand. And it isn't that He's withholding this information. It's just a God thing. In fact, let me, could I just take a moment to say this? I didn't say this first service, so you can tell them. But in Romans nine, twenty-two, we read the most remarkable sentence. He says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power, make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. He's saying, God is able to wisely think through and to know exactly how to use and to make each one of us. And it's beyond us. It's only the kinds of things God can think about. So the next logical question as we come through this, this particular chapter is, well, if I'm responsible for my own sin, that is, I'm not going to be punished for my parents' sin, <laughs> That only is marginally comforting. Because while it's nice that I'm not going to be paying for their sin, really, before God, still I must find some way to deal with my own. And this is then when he says to them, Okay, repent. I'm not bringing this judgment upon you because of the previous generation's sins. You're mimicking them. You're doing what they did. And thus, these kinds of things the result is my judgment, but but it's you who've sinned. Now, if you want to escape this judgment, then he says in verse 21, but if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he's committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He's saying to them, turn away from your sin then. Don't die in them. That's not my heart, really. My desire for you. So turn from your sins and live. And this is that word repentance. Now repentance is a very significant word, obviously. Remember when John the Baptist came on the scene, he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right here, but in order to enter it, you're going to have to change. And the change is going to have to be in your thinking, and then you're going to have to leave your own kingdom, leave the kingdom of the world and enter into the very kingdom of God. When Jesus came on the scene, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Peter preached the first sermon on the day of Pentecost, he said, repent. Be baptized, meaning repent and identify with Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, because he is the king. So repentance is very important to us, but but we must understand what it really means to repent. Turn quickly to 2 Corinthians in chapter 7. 2 Corinthians in chapter 7. Because you see, when we're confronted with our wrongdoing, when we're confronted with our wrongdoing, we almost always feel bad. But that bad feeling doesn't necessarily lead to repentance. Notice what the Apostle said. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, In verse 9. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You see, when we're confronted with our sin, if you will, or things which we've done wrong, We almost always feel bad, but that doesn't necessarily lead to repentance. Sometimes we simply feel bad because now we got caught. Now we're going to face the punishment of what we did. And not only that, we're going to lose what we formerly considered to be the benefit of that sin. We like that sin. And now we've been found out. And now we may not be able to do it anymore without great penalty, without great cost. And we grieve the loss of that. Oh yes, we may grieve the fact that we hurt someone else, but that may be a selfish grieving, because now they think badly of us. That's worldly grief. It doesn't really lead anywhere. But he says there is a godly grief that produces a repentance that leads to salvation. You see, worldly grief just, this makes us want to get a get out of hell free card. And then be able to go on and live life as we did before. Whereas, godly grief looks at it much differently. Notice what he says about that in verse 11. He says, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. See, godly grief produces something in us, something visible. And what is visible is, first of all, an earnestness, a seriousness about dealing with, about facing our sin. An earnestness about that. Again, we have a tendency to want to deny these things when confronted. I think it was T.S. Eliot who said, Humankind cannot bear much reality. We don't like to be confronted. Jesus put it, obviously, better when he said we love darkness rather than light because light exposes the darkness and we don't like that we don't like the darkness in us exposed James writes in James chapter 1 about coming to God's word and being convicted by it and doing nothing with it and he uses the image of a mirror he says it's sort of like somebody comes to a mirror and you have a dirty face you look into the mirror and you go I look great and walk away until you don't do anything Ah. How long did it take for David to admit his sin? He had committed adultery, he had lied, he had murdered. And yet he denied that sin and he was a man after God's own heart, the scripture says. It took another coming to him to tell a story that outraged him, that caused him then to admit his own sin, his own guilt before the Lord. Denial is in us. And yet when true godly sorrow comes, it leads us to an earnestness, a seriousness about our sin. And then he goes on to say, but also, what eagerness to clear yourselves. Now, when the apostle says that repentance means we have an eagerness to clear ourselves, it doesn't mean that we try to convince other people we really didn't do this. We really didn't. What we're trying to clear ourselves of is... To convince people that we're no longer like that. We're no longer going to do that. We want to so distance ourselves from our sin that people no longer associate us with it. We want to clear ourselves that we're no longer people who do that. I think I've told this story before years ago of a friend that I met uh, when Karen and I were living in South Carolina a long time ago. It was a man by the name of Jim Mulig. And uh, I knew Jim. He was an older man. He was probably 50. And um, he um, was the sweetest, kindest, most compassionate, generous man I, I knew. And one of the things that was remarkable about Jim is that, though he was a busy man like everyone else, every Wednesday night and every Sunday morning, he drove this clunky bus, school bus, old school bus, into the inner city of our community and picked up a bunch of kids and brought them to church on Wednesday night and on Sunday morning. Two weeks in the summer, we had a summer camp for these kids in the inner city, and Jim volunteered his time. Not only did he transport them, but he was a counselor and he was there, and he was there, and it was amazing. When Jim was around, the kids flocked to him, and it was like Jesus had arrived. It was wonderful, a wonderful time. And, and I heard through the grapevine that Jim was a great golfer, and that kind of surprised me, because I had a number of conversations with this guy, and he never talked about golf to me. Um, and so I went up to him one day, and I said, Jim, people tell me, you're a great golfer, one of the great, best golfers in the state. And he looked very serious at me, as if I had just said something horrible. And he said, no, 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 I used to be. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I used to play golf all the time. He said, I, in fact, I used to be so good that on the weekends... I made enough money golfing, betting on his golf game, golfing, that really it was more than my other income. And he said, I was really good, and I was known as the golfer guy, but he said, I I played every weekend, I played every Sunday morning. I never went to church, I never worshipped God. And then he said, then I got saved. And then I realized my sin of neglecting God. And he said, so I quit playing golf. And he said, I never think about golf I never watch golf I never talk about golf because I don't want to be known as the golfer guy I want to be known as the guy who follows Jesus and he was a guy who was eager to clear himself he no longer wanted to be associated with the old he only wanted to be associated with Christ and so he distanced himself now if you play golf that's that's fine don't play on Sunday mornings (laughs) although if you do I hope you do really well You won't be able to tell anybody. Um, (laughs) But he wanted to distance himself so far from it. Uh, A number of years ago, uh, Karen and I had a friend who was a thief. And uh, we've kept some strange company over the years, but he was was a thief. And and, uh, after he became a Christian, uh, he uh, bought us a Christmas present. First Christmas after he had become a a believer, and he brought us a present. It was a, a clock radio. And he gave it to us. We looked at each other and we said, Jack, honey, we love you, but you need to show us the receipt. (laughs) And he said, I knew you were going to ask me that. And he pulled it out. He said, look, I bought this. (laughs) He was eager. He was eager. He wasn't upset with us. He was eager to show us and to distance himself from his former sin. And we later wondered if he had stolen the money. Uh, <laughs> but but he, but he had a receipt, and it, I tell spouses who've been unfaithful that you need to convince your spouse of your repentance, that you are not the victim, and you need to do whatever you possibly can to clear yourself. That is not to say you didn't do it, not to, but to say I don't do this anymore, and whatever it takes whether it's showing receipts from business trips, whether it's getting calls on a regular basis, whether it's inquiring with fellow employees, whether it's quitting your job because you travel too much and it's too great of a temptation, whatever that happens to be, that you distance yourself so far from it so that you can convince because you're eager to clear yourself to show that that's not who you are anymore. I mentioned earlier the whole problem in... Of, of, of internet issues and internet pornography. And if that's a problem for you, you need to do whatever you possibly can because it's destroying men's lives. If you're a young man, please, by the mercy of God, if this is an issue for you at all, take your computer and throw it away. It will destroy your life. join with some of us involved in this whole covenant eyes thing who are always accountable to someone else. Do that. Do it as a sign of repentance. Do you understand the seriousness of this sin that it's not out to be your friend? It doesn't bring pleasure. It's going to kill you. It wants to destroy you. And you understand that you've offended God. And it isn't that you just got caught and feel bad, but it's more than that. You understand the wrongness of it and the evil of it. And so you want to get rid of it and move away from this sin and, and to separate yourself from it and to leave it and to walk with God. And so it may well be that you have to, as a sign of repentance and as, as real genuine repentance, get rid of this stuff. And I'm not a book burner, record burner kind of guy. Although there's some books, if you have, I'd love to burn, but uh, they're just usually bad theology. Uh, but um, but think about it. distance yourself here, Ernest, to clear yourselves. What indignation, A sense of real passion, real anger at yourself for having done this? That, that's right to do. Don't live there, but but understand that. Yes. Oh. And the fear, you see, goes on. That I could possibly do this again. What longing to be free of it. What zeal. Then in my version, the SV, it simply says, what punishment. It doesn't mean that you're going to inflict punishment on yourself for punishment's sake. But, but this. Be willing to do whatever it takes in order to recompense for your sin. Whether it means making restitution, you should do that with joy. Not as the victim, oh no, i got to pay this back. But no, with joy to be able to make restitution and whatever it takes. That's true repentance. At every point you've proved yourself innocent in this matter, he says to them. Not innocent that they didn't sin, but innocent now they're no longer sinning in that particular way. A sign of their repentance. And so when Ezekiel says, listen, In the mystery of God, however you want to say this, however you want to think about this, bottom line, get rid of all the theological questions and issues that may arise. The bottom line, truth, no matter what else, is that each of us is responsible for our own hearts, our own lives. That's the truth. No matter how difficult your life has been, no matter how rotten our society becomes, no matter how difficult all that makes it, and how painful it is in the struggle that it is. Still, we're responsible for our hearts and our lives before God. We can blame no one. But that doesn't mean that we need to be stuck there. He says, repent, turn from it. And in various mysterious language the theologians, he says, make yourself a new heart. And by that he means, he says, you know, change, be different. Now, he's not telling us what he's going to do in the midst of this. Later he'll do that, and that's really comforting. But he says, listen, bottom line, right now, bombs are going to fall tomorrow. So right now, what you need to know is get on with it. Don't wait for tomorrow. Don't wait for the next day. Don't wait till you feel like it.